Section 38 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 22, 1588-1591, Part 3. At Elvetham in Hampshire, the Queen was sumptuously entertained during a visit of four days by the Earl of Hertford. This nobleman was reputed to be master of more ready money than any other person in the kingdom, and though the cruel imprisonment of nine years, by which Elizabeth had doomed him to expiate the offence of a clandestine union with the blood royal, could scarcely have been obliterated from his indignant memory, certain considerations respecting the interests of his children might probably render him not unwilling to gratify her by a splendid act of homage, though peculiar circumstances increased beyond measure the expense and inconvenience of her present visit. Elvetham, which was little more than a hunting-seat, was far from possessing sufficient accommodation for the court, and the earl was obliged to supply its deficiencies by very extensive erections of timber, fitted up and furnished with all the elegance that circumstances would permit. He likewise found it necessary to cause a large pond to be dug, in which were formed three islands, artificially constructed in the likeness of a fort, a ship, and a mount, for the exhibition of fireworks and other splendid pageantries. The water was made to swarm with swimming and wading sea-gods, who blew trumpets instead of shells, and recited verses in praise of Her Majesty. Finally, a tremendous battle was enacted between the tritons of the pond and certain sylvan deities of the park, which was long and valiantly disputed, with darts on one side and large squirts on the other, and suddenly terminated, to the delight of all beholders, by the seizure and submersion of old Sylvanus himself. Elizabeth quitted Elvetham so highly gratified by the attentions of the noble owner that she made him a voluntary promise of her special favour and protection, but we shall find hereafter that her long-enduring displeasure against him relative to his first marriage was not yet so entirely laid aside, but that a slight pretext was sufficient to bring it once more into malignant activity. Early in the same summer the Queen had also paid a visit to Lord Burley at his favourite seat in Hertfordshire, of which Sir Thomas Wilkes thus speaks in a letter to Sir Robert Sidney. Quote, I suppose you have heard of Her Majesty's great entertainment at Theobald's, of her knighting Mr. Robert Cecil, and of the expectation of his advancement to the secretaryship. But so it is, as we say in court, that the knighthood must serve for both. Sir Christopher Hatton died in the latter end of the year, 1591. It appears that he had been languishing for a considerable time under a mortal disease, yet the vulgar appetite for the wonderful and the tragical occasioned it to be reported that he died of a broken heart, in consequence of Her Majesty's having demanded of him, with a rigour which he had not anticipated, the payment of certain monies received by him for tenths and first-fruits. It was added that, struck with compunction on learning to what extremity her severity had reduced him, Her Majesty had paid him several visits, and endeavoured by her gracious and soothing speeches to revive his failing spirits, but that the blow was struck and her repentance came too late. It is indeed certain that the Queen manifested great interest in the fate of her Chancellor, and paid him during his last illness very extraordinary personal attentions, but it ought to be mentioned, in refutation of the former part of the story, that she remitted to his nephew and heir, who was married to a granddaughter of Burley's, all her claims on the property which he left behind him. During his lifetime also Hatton seems to have tasted more largely than those of his competitors of the solid fruits of royal favour. Elizabeth persevered in the practice of originating in the reigns of her father and brother, of endowing her courtiers out of the spoils of the church. Sometimes, to the public scandal, 
she would keep a bishopric many years vacant for the sake of appropriating its whole revenues to secular uses and persons and still more frequently the presentation to a see was given under the condition express or implied that certain manors should be detached from its possessions or beneficial leases of lands and tenements granted to particular persons thus the bishop of ely was required to make a cession to sir christopher hatton of the garden and orchard of ely house near holborn on the refusal of the prelate to surrender property which he regarded himself as bound in honour and conscience to transmit unimpaired to his successors hatton instituted against him a chancery suit and having at length succeeded in wresting from him the land made it the site of a splendid house surrounded by gardens which have been succeeded by the street still bearing his name he had even sufficient interest with her majesty to cause her to address to the bishop the following violent letter several times with some variations reprinted quote, proud prelate i understand you are backward in complying with your agreement but i would have you to know that i who made you what you are can unmake you and if you do not forthwith fulfil your engagement by god i will immediately unfrock you yours as you demean yourself elizabeth sir john harrington in his brief view of the church of england accuses the lord chancellor hatton of coveting likewise a certain manner attached to the see of bath and wells and of inflaming the queen's indignation against bishop godwin on account of his second marriage in order to frighten him into compliance a manoeuvre which in part succeeded since the bishop was reduced by way of compromise to grant him a long lease of another manor somewhat inferior in value with all this hatton as we have formerly observed was distinguished as the patron of the established church against the puritans but his zeal in its behalf whether real or affected was attended by a spirit of moderation then rare and always commendable he disliked and sometimes checked the oppressions exercised against the papists by a rigid enforcement of recent statutes and he is reported to have held the doctrine at that time a novel one that neither fire nor steel ought ever to be employed on a religious account the chancellor besides his other merits and accomplishments was a cultivator of the drama in fifteen sixty eight a tragedy was performed before her majesty and afterwards published entitled tancred and gismund or gismund of salerne the joint performance of five students of the temple who appear each to have taken an act the fourth bears the signature of hatton it is also probable that he gave the queen some assistance in similar pursuits as her translation of a part of the tragedy of hercules Ateus, preserved in the bodleian is in his handwriting but it was never forgotten by others nor apparently by himself that he was brought into notice by his dancing and we learn from a contemporary letter-writer that even after he had attained the dignity of lord chancellor he laid aside his gown to dance at the wedding of his nephew the circumstance is pleasantly alluded to by gray in the description of stoke pogis house with which his long story opens Quote, in britain's isle no matter where an ancient pile of buildings stands the huntingtons and hattons there employed the power of fairy hands to raise the ceiling's fretted height each panel in achievements clothing rich windows that exclude the light and passages that lead to nothing full oft within the spacious walls when he had fifty winters o'er him my grave lord keeper led the brawls the seal and maces danced before him his bushy beard and shoestrings green his high-crowned hat and satin doublet moved the stout heart of england's queen though pope and spaniard could not trouble it as chancellor of oxford hatton was succeeded by lord buckhurst to the fresh mortification of essex who again advanced pretensions to this honorary office 
and was a second time baffled by her majesty's open interference in behalf of his competitor the more important post of lord chancellor remained vacant for some months the seals being put in commission after which sergeant pickering was appointed lord keeper a person of respectable character who appears to have performed the duties of his office without taking any conspicuous part in the court factions or exercising any marked influence over the general administration of affairs towards one person of considerable note in his day sir john perrot some time deputy of ireland hatton is reported to have acted the part of an industrious and contriving enemy being provoked by the taunts which sir john was continually throwing out against him as one who quote, had entered the court in a galliard end quote, and further instigated by the complaints well or ill-founded against the deputy of some of his particular friends and adherents sir john perrot derived from a considerable family of that name seated at haroldstone in pembrokeshire his name and large estates but his features his figure his air and common fame gave him king henry the eighth for a father nor was his resemblance to this redoubted monarch merely external his temper was haughty and violent his behaviour blustering his language always coarse and in the fits of rage to which he was subject abusive to excess yet was he destitute neither of merit nor abilities as president of munster he had rendered great services to her majesty in fifteen seventy two by his vigorous conduct against the rebels as lord deputy of ireland between the years fifteen eighty four and fifteen eighty eight he had made efforts still more praiseworthy towards the pacification of that unhappy and ill-governed country by checking as much as possible the oppressions of every kind exercised by the english of the pale against the miserable natives towards whom his policy was liberal and benevolent but his attempts at reformation armed against him as usual a host of foes amongst whom was particularly distinguished loftus archbishop of dublin whom he had exasperated by proposing to apply the revenues of st patrick's cathedral to the foundation of a university in the capital of ireland forged letters were amongst the means to which the unprincipled malice of his adversaries resorted for his destruction one of these atrocious fabrications in which an irish chieftain was made to complain of excessive injustice on the part of the deputy was detected by the exertions of the supposed writer whom perrot had in reality attached to himself by many benefits but a second letter which contained a protection to a catholic priest and made him employ the words our castle of dublin our kingdom of ireland produced a fatally strong impression on the jealous mind of elizabeth meantime the ill-fated deputy conscious of his own fidelity and essential loyalty and unsuspicious of the snares spread around him was often unguarded enough to give vent in gross and furious invective against the person of majesty itself to the profound vexation which he in common with all preceding and following governors of ireland under elizabeth was destined to endure from the penury of her supplies and the magnitude of her requisitions his words were all carried to the queen mingled with such artful insinuations as served to impart to these unmeaning ebullitions of a hasty temper the air of deliberate contempt and meditated disloyalty towards his sovereign just before the sailing of the armada perrot was recalled partly indeed at his own request a rigid or rather a malicious inquiry was then instituted into all the details of his actions words and behaviour in ireland and he was committed to the friendly custody of lord burleigh afterwards the lords hunsdon and buckhurst with two or three other councillors were ordered to search and seize his papers in the house of the lord treasurer without the participation of this great minister who was at once offended and alarmed at the step perrot was carried to the tower and at length in april fifteen ninety two put upon his trial for high treason the principal heads of accusation were his contemptuous words of the queen 
his secret encouragement of O'Rourke's rebellion and the Spanish invasion, and his favouring of traitors. Of all these charges, except the first, he seems to have proved his innocence, and on this he excused himself by the heat of his temper and the absence of all ill intention from his mind. He was, however, found guilty by a jury much more studious of the reputation of loyalty than careful of the rights of Englishmen. On leaving the bar, he is reported to have exclaimed, quote, God's death, will the Queen suffer her brother to be offered up as a sacrifice to the envy of my frisking adversaries? The Queen felt the force of this appeal to the ties of blood. It was long before she could be brought to confirm his sentence, and she would never sign a warrant for its execution. Burley shed tears on hearing the verdict, saying with a sigh that hatred was always the more inveterate the less it was deserved. Elizabeth, when her first emotions of anger had passed away, was now frequently heard to praise that rescript of the Emperor Theodosius in which it is thus written, quote, Should any one have spoken ill of the Emperor, if through levity it should be despised, if through insanity pitied, if through malice forgiven. She is likewise said, in a language more familiar to her, to have sworn a great oath that they who accused Parrot were all knaves, and he an honest and faithful man. It was accordingly presumed that she entertained the design of extending to him the royal pardon but her mercy, if such it merits to be called, was tardy, and in September 1592, six months after his condemnation, this victim of malice perished in the tower, of disease, according to Camden, but by other accounts of a broken heart. In either case the story is an affecting one, and worthy to be had in lasting remembrance, as a striking and terrible example of the potency of court intrigue, and the guilty subserviency of judicial tribunals under the jealous rule of the last of the Tudors. English literature, under the auspices of Elizabeth and her learned court, had been advancing with a steady and rapid progress, and it may be interesting to contemplate the state of one of its fairest provinces, as exhibited by the pen of an able critic, who in the year 1589 gave to the world an art of English poesy. This work, though addressed to the Queen, was published with a dedication by the printer to Lord Burley, for the author thought proper to remain concealed. On its first appearance its merit caused it to be ascribed to Spencer by some, and by others to Sidney. But it was traced at length to Putnam, one of Her Majesty's gentlemen pensioners, the author of some adulatory poems addressed to her, and called Partheniads, and of various other pieces now lost. The subject is here methodically treated in three books, the first, of Poets and Poesy, the second, of Proportion, the third, of Ornament. After some remarks on the origin of the art and its earliest professors, and an account of the various kinds of poems known to the ancients, in which there is an absence of pedantry, of quaintness, and of every species of puerility, very rare among the didactic writers of the age, the critic proceeds to an enumeration of our principal vernacular poets, or vulgar-makers, as he is pleased to anglicize the words. Beginning with a just tribute to Chaucer, as the father of genuine English verse, he passes rapidly to the latter end of the reign of Henry the Eighth, when, as he observes, there, quote, sprung up a new company of courtly makers, of whom Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder and Henry Earl of Surrey were the two chieftains, who, having travelled into Italy, and there tasted the sweet and stately measures and style of the Italian poesy, as novices newly crept out of the schools of Dante, Ariost, and Petrarch, they greatly polished our rude and homely manner of vulgar poesy, from that it had been before, and for that cause may justly be said the first reformers of our English metre and style." After slight notice of minor poets, who flourished under Edward the Sixth and Mary, he goes on to observe that, quote, in Her Majesty's time that now is, 
are sprung up another crew of courtly makers, noblemen and gentlemen of Her Majesty's own servants, who have written excellently well, as it would appear if their doing could be found out, and made public with the rest." And in a subsequent passage he thus awards to each of them his appropriate commendation. Quote, of the latter sort I think thus, that for tragedy the Lord Buckhurst and Master Edward Ferrers, for such doings as I have seen of theirs do deserve the highest price. The Earl of Oxford and Master Edwards of Her Majesty's Chapel, for comedy and interlude. For Eglog and pastoral poesy, Sir Philip Sidney and Master Chaloner, and that other gentleman who wrote the late Shepherd's Calendar. For dirty and amorous ode I find Sir Walter Raleigh's vein most lofty, insolent and passionate. Master Edward Dyer for elegy, most sweet, solemn, and of high conceit. Gascoigne for a good metre and a plentiful vein. Fair and Golding for a learned and well-corrected verse, specially in translation clear, and very faithfully answering their author's intent. Others have also written with much facility, but more commendably perchance if they had not written so much nor so popularly." The passage concludes with a piece of flattery to Her Majesty in her poetical capacity unworthy of transcription. Under the head of poetical proportion, or metre, our author writes learnedly of the measures of the ancients, and on those employed by our native poets, with singular taste and judgment, except that the artist-like pride and difficulty overcome, has inspired him with an unwarrantable fondness for verses arranged in eggs, roundrels, lozenges, triquets, and other ingenious figures, of which he has given diagrams further illustrated by finished specimens of his own construction. Great efforts had been made about this period by a literary party, of which Stainhurst, the translator of Virgil, Sidney, and Gabriel Harvey, were the leaders, to introduce the Greek and Roman measures into English verse, and Putnam has judged it necessary to compose a chapter thus entitled, quote, How, if all manner of sudden innovations were not very scandalous, especially in the laws of any language or art, the use of Greek and Latin feet might be brought into our vulgar poesy, and with good grace enough, end quote but it is evident on the whole that he bore no good will to this pedantic novelty. In treating of ornament, our author enumerates, explains, and exemplifies all the rhetorical figures of the Greeks, adding for the benefit of courtiers and ladies, to whom his work is principally addressed, translations of their names, several of which would require to be retranslated for the benefit of the modern reader, as for example the three following, all figures of derision, the fleering frump, the broad flout, the privy nip, at the present day, however, the work of Putnam is most of all to be valued for the remarks on language and on manners, and the contemporary anecdotes with which it abounds, and of which some examples may be quoted. After observing that, quote, as it hath been always reputed a great fault to use figurative speeches foolishly and indiscreetly, so it is esteemed no less an imperfection in man's utterance to have none use of figure at all, especially in our writing and speeches public, making them but as our ordinary talk than which nothing can be more unsavoury and far from all civility. I remember, says he, in the first year of Queen Mary's reign, a knight of Yorkshire was chosen Speaker of the Parliament, a good gentleman and wise in the affairs of his shire, and not unlearned in the laws of the realm, but as well for lack of some of his teeth as for want of language, nothing well spoken, which at that time and business was most behoofful for him to have been. This man, after he had made his oration to the Queen, which ye know is of course to be done at the first assembly of both houses, a bencher of the temple, both well learned and very eloquent, returning from the Parliament House, asked another gentleman, his friend, how he liked Mr. Speaker's oration. Mary, quoth the other, methinks I heard not a better alehouse tale told this seven years. 
and though grave and wise counsellors in their consultations do not use much superfluous eloquence, and also in their judicial hearings do much mislike all scholastical rhetorics, yet in such a case, if the Lord Chancellor of England, or Archbishop of Canterbury himself were to speak, he ought to do it cunningly and eloquently, which cannot be without the use of figures, and nevertheless none impeachment or blemish to the gravity of the persons or of the cause, wherein I report me to them that knew Sir Nicholas Bacon, Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, or the now Lord Treasurer of England, and have been conversant with their speeches made in the Parliament House and Star Chamber. From whose lips I have seen to proceed more grave and natural eloquence than from all the orators of Oxford or Cambridge, but all is as it is handled, and maketh no matter whether the same eloquence be natural to them or artificial, though I rather think natural. Yet were they known to be learned, and not unskilful of the art when they were younger men. I have come to the Lord Keeper Sir Nicholas Bacon, and found him sitting in his gallery alone, with the works of Quintilian before him. Indeed he was a most eloquent man, and of rare learning and wisdom as ever I knew England to breed, and one that joyed as much in learned men and men of good wits." He mentions being a bystander when a doctor of civil law, quote, pleading in a litigious cause betwixt a man and his wife, before a great magistrate, who, as they can tell that knew him, was a man very well learned and grave, but somewhat sour and of no plausible utterance. The gentleman's chance was to say, My lord, the simple woman is not so much to blame as her lewd abettors, who by violent persuasions have led her into this wilfulness. Quoth the judge, What need such eloquent terms in this place? The gentleman replied, Doth your lordship mislike the term violent? And methinks I speak it to great purpose, for I am sure she would never have done it but by force of persuasion, etc. Pursuing the subject of language, which, he says, quote, in our maker or poet must be heedly looked unto, that it be natural, pure, and the most usual of all his country, after some other rules or cautions, he adds, quote, our maker, therefore, at these days, shall not follow Piers Plowman, nor Gower, nor Lydgate, nor yet Chaucer, for their language is now out of use with us. Neither shall he take the terms of northern men, such as they use in daily talk, whether they be noblemen or gentlemen, or of their best clerks, all is a matter, nor in effect any speech used beyond the river of Trent, though no man can deny but theirs is the purer English Saxon at this day. Yet it is not so courtly, nor so current, as our southern English is. No more is the far western man's speech. Ye shall therefore take the usual speech of the court, and that of London and the shires lying about London, within sixty miles, and not much above." I say not this, but in every shire of England there be gentlemen and others that speak, but specially write, as good southern as we of Middlesex or Surrey do, but not the common people of every shire, to whom the gentlemen and also their learned clerks do for the most part condescend. But herein we are ruled by the English dictionaries and other books written by learned men, and therefore it needeth none other direction in that behalf. Albeit peradventure some small admonition be not impertinent, for we find in our English writers many words and speeches amendable and ye shall see in some many inkhorn terms so ill-affected brought in by men of learning as preachers and schoolmasters, and many strange terms of other languages by secretaries and merchants and travellers, and many dark words, and not usual nor well-sounding, though they be daily spoken in court. Wherefore great heed must be taken by our Maker in this point that his choice be good." He modestly expresses his apprehensions that in some of these respects he may himself be accounted a transgressor and he subjoins a list of the new, foreign, or unusual words employed by him in this tract, with his reasons for their adoption. Of this number are scientific, conduit, quote, a French word, but well allowed of us, and long since usual. It sounds something more than this word, leading, 
for it is implied only to the leading of a captain, and not as a little boy should lead a blind man. Idiom from the Greek, significative, quote, borrowed of the Latin and French, but to us brought in first by some nobleman's secretary, as I think, yet doth so well serve the turn as it could not now be spared. And many more like usurped Latin and French words as method, methodical, placation, function, asuptiling, refining, compendious, prolix, figurative, inveigle, a term borrowed of our common lawyers, impression, also a new term, but well expressing the matter, and more than our English word, penetrate, penetrable, indignity, in the sense of unworthiness, and a few more. The whole enumeration is curious, and strikingly exhibits the state of language at this epoch, when the rapid advancement of letters and of all the arts of social life was creating a daily want of new terms, which writers in all classes, and individuals in every walk of life, regarded themselves as authorized to supply at their own discretion, in any manner and from any sources most accessible to them, whether pure or corrupt, ancient or modern. The pedants of the universities, and the travelled coxcombs of the court, had each a neological jargon of their own, unintelligible to each other and to the people at large. On the other hand, there were a few persons of grave professions and austere characters, who, like Cato the censor, during a similar period of accelerated progress in the Roman state, prided themselves on preserving in all its unsophisticated simplicity, or primitive rudeness, the tongue of their forefathers. The judicious Putnam, uniting the accuracy of scholastic learning with the enlargement of mind acquired by long intercourse among foreign nations, and with the polish of a courtier, places himself between the contending parties, and with a manly disdain of every species of affectation, but especially that of rusticity and barbarism, avails himself, without scruple as without excess, of the copiousness of other languages to supply the remaining deficiencies of his own. Several chapters of the book of Ornament are devoted to the discussion of the decent, or seemly, in words and actions, and prove the author to have been a nice observer of manners, as well as a refined critic of style. He severely censures a certain translator of Virgil, who said, quote, that Aeneas was fain to trudge out of Troy, which term better became to be spoken of a beggar, or of a rogue, or of a lackey, end quote. and another who called the same hero, quote, by fate a fugitive, end quote and who inquires, quote, what moved Juno to tug so great a captain, end quote, a word, quote, the most indecent in this case that could have been devised, since it is derived from the cart, and signifies the draught or pull of the horses, end quote. The phrase, quote, a prince's pelf, end quote, is reprobated, because pelf means properly, quote, the scraps or shreds of tailors and of skinners, end quote. He gives strict rules for the decorous behaviour of ambassadors, and all who address themselves to princes, being himself a courtier, and having probably exercised some diplomatic function. Quote, I have seen, says he, foreign ambassadors in the Queen's presence laugh so dissolutely at some rare pastime or sport that hath been made there, that nothing in the world could have worse become in them. With respect to men in other stations of life, he is pleased to say it is decent for a priest quote, to be sober and sad, quote, a judge to be incorrupted, solitary, and unacquainted with courtiers or courtly entertainments without pleat or wrinkle, sour in look and churlish in speech, contrarywise a courtly gentleman to be lofty and curious in countenance, yet sometimes a creeper and a curry favel with his superiors. Quote, and in a prince it is decent to go slowly and to march with leisure, and with a certain grandity rather than gravity, as our sovereign lady and mistress, the very image of majesty and magnificence, is accustomed to do generally, unless it be when she walketh apace for her pleasure, or to catch her a heat in the cold mornings. 
nevertheless it is not so decent in a meaner person as i have discerned in some counterfeit ladies of the country which use it much to their own derision this comeliness was wanting in queen mary otherwise a very good and honourable princess and with some blemish to the emperor ferdinando a most noble-minded man yet so careless and forgetful of himself in that behalf as i have seen him run up a pair of stairs so swift and nimble a pace as almost had not become a very mean man who had not gone in some hasty business respecting the poets mentioned by putnam whose names have not already occurred in the present work it may be observed that excepting a few lines quoted by this critic there is nothing remaining of sir edward dyer's except which is highly probable he is to be reckoned among the anonymous contributors to the popular collections of that day of gascoigne on the contrary enough is left to exhaust the patience of any modern reader in his youth neglecting the study of the law for poetry and pleasure he poured forth an abundance of amatory pieces some of them sonnets closely imitating the italian ones in style as well as structure afterwards during a five years service in the war of flanders he found pleasure for much serious thought and discarding the levities of his early years he composed by way of expiation a moral satire in blank verse called the steel glass and several religious pieces notwithstanding however this newly assumed seriousness he attended her majesty in her progress in the summer of fifteen seventy five and composed a large number of courtly verses as a contribution to quote, the princely pleasures of kenilworth gascoigne died in october fifteen seventy seven of his minor poems the following may be cited as a pleasing specimen the lullaby of a lover quote, sing lullaby as women do wherewith they bring their babes to rest and lullaby can i sing too as womanly as can the best with lullaby they still the child and if i be not much beguiled full many wanton babes have i which must be stilled with lullaby first lullaby my youthful years it is now time to go to bed for crooked age and hoary years have won the haven within my head with lullaby then youth be still with lullaby content thy will since courage quails and comes behind go sleep and so beguile thy mind next lullaby my gazing eyes which wanted were to glance apace for every glass may now suffice to show the furrows in my face with lullaby then wink awhile with lullaby your looks beguile let no fair face or beauty bright entice you eft with vain delight and lullaby my wanton will let reason's rule now reign thy thought since all too late i find by skill how dear i have thy fancies bought with lullaby thy doubts appease for trust to this if thou be still my body shall obey thy will thus lullaby my youth mine eyes my will my wear and all that was i can no more delays devise but welcome pain let pleasure pass with lullaby now take your leave with lullaby your dreams deceive and when you rise with waking eye remember then this lullaby respecting another poet of greater popularity than gascoigne and of a more original turn of genius warner the author of albion's england putnam has preserved a discreet silence for his great work had been prohibited by the capricious tyranny or rigid decorum of archbishop whitgift and seizure made in fifteen eighty six of the copies surreptitiously printed this long and singular poem is a kind of metrical chronicle containing the remarkable events of english history from the flood the starting-point of all chroniclers to the reign of queen elizabeth it is written in the common ballad measure and in a style often creeping and prosaic sometimes quaint and affected but passages of beautiful simplicity and strokes of genuine pathos frequently occur to redeem its faults 
and the tediousness of the historical narration is relieved by a large intermixture of interesting and entertaining episodes the ballads of queen eleanor and fair rosamond argentile and curan and the patient countess selected by dr percy in his relics of ancient poetry may be regarded by the poetical student of the present day as a sufficient specimen of the talents of warner but in his own time he was complimented as the homer or virgil of the age the persevering reader travelled not only with patience but delight through his seventy-seven long chapters and it is said that the work became popular enough notwithstanding its prohibition by authority to supersede in some degree its celebrated predecessor the mirror for magistrates End of section thirty eight